Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, patriotic millionaires are campaigning to end income inequality. Meet one of them, Fred Rotondaro, and be amazed. What is a patriotic millionaire? A millionaire or even billionaire who understands that income inequality is bad for everyone and who cares enough about people to demand that millionaires pay their fair share. In other words, these are rich people who are not just willing to level the playing field, they are actively campaigning to do just that. Do they exist? They sure do. And we're interviewing one of them on the show. Fred Rotondero is a millionaire who came from a coal mining family to be a teacher, do anti-poverty and civil rights work, to be a journalist, and more. And Fred is passionately working to end the obscene income inequality in our nation. Who are these patriotic millionaires? What motivates them? What are they doing to change our society? Is this movement catching on? Tune in. Stay tuned now for all of this and more. And now, here's Beth. Well, I was just thinking as you were uh, sharing that uh, show description with us, James, that we could use the patriotic millionaire over here. Don't we sure you think? could. Yeah, to support the... <laughs> Inner revolution and inner revolutionary radio and our retirement. I think so. But actually, <laughs> these, <laughs> these people are doing something really great for the whole. So I can't complain. So uh, today, you know, you guys, first of all, welcome everybody, all of our Voice America listeners and all of our listeners on the Pacifica Affiliates. So those of you who are regulars know that we usually do the news of the inner revolution, but we're going to be messing around with the format just to keep everybody, you know, confused. And um, what, what I had intended to do was read you some of the incredible headlines from the last week, and we were all going to get together and go yay and boo. For example... That women are going out there and they're giving out uh, tampons and other um, uh, menstrual uh, it products to the homeless women. And that's a big yay, isn't it? I mean, you know, think about it. Those poor women on the street, you know. And uh, so that was a big yay. And there were a lot of boos. What can I tell you? But, but instead of going on and doing all the yays and boos, uh, I just read something. Just, which I should have read before. And I just want to share a bunch of this with you, and then I want to make a comment. And after all of that, of course, we will be bringing on our guest, Fred, and we'll find out how to really pronounce his last name. So, but this is really incredible, I think. Anyway, the picture in the article is really very appealing to me, so that's the most important thing. This is dated August 21st, and it's from the New York Times. The title of the story is English Village Becomes Climate Leader by Quietly Cleaning Up Its Own Patch. And there's a a guy grinning and, you know, you see all these green things around him and the cloudy English sky and solar panels. See, they have solar panels. And And anyway, um, this small village of uh, 1,000 people looks like any other nestled in the countryside, but Ashton Hayes is different in an important way when it comes to one of the world's most pressing issues, climate change. Hundreds of residents have banded together to cut greenhouse emissions. Now, listen to this and ask yourself if you're willing to do all of these. Okay, using clotheslines instead of dryers. Boo, 
I can't even see myself doing that. Taking fewer flights, well, that's easy for me because I never fly. Install solar panels. They don't want to install solar panels here because we have too many trees. And glaze windows to better insulate their homes. Well, we have dual-pane windows already, but we could make them better. And then there's other stuff that people do, like they install geothermal heat pumps and stuff like that. Well, this is really amazing. What makes Ashton Hayes unusual is its approach. The residents have done it themselves without prodding from the government. Now, I am not saying that we don't need government action on climate change. But while we're waiting for the Republicans in Congress to realize that there is climate change, while Louisiana is flooding and Indiana is full of tornadoes and the West is dry and burning, uh, and that humans have something to do with it, like this is not a duh already, here are people who are actually doing something for themselves. I consider this the inner revolution, right? Oneness, accountability, and mutual support. So now, now 200 towns about cities and counties around the world have reached out to learn how the villagers here did it. And that includes uh, Norway, New Jersey, and Taiwan, places from all those places. And isn't that incredible? So now here's, this is what I think is most fascinating One of their secrets, it seems, is that the people of Ashton Hayes feel in charge, right? Yeah. They're not waiting around for the gods to fix it, right? They feel in charge (laughs) rather than following government policies. Now, when people are in charge here, what do they do? They go occupy a a, a federal park or (laughs) or punch out someone in the street. But no, these people are being in charge and they're doing something good and and we do good things too like as i said that women going out there and giving out uh you know sanitary napkins well when now listen this is funny when the p- member of parliament who represents the village showed up at their first public meeting in january 2006 he was told he could not make any speeches we said this is not about you tonight this is about us and you can listen to what you've, we've got to say for a change, <laughs> said Kate Harrison, a resident and early member of the group. No politician. Huh? How refreshing. Yeah. No politician has been allowed to address the group since. <laughs> and, and the village has kept the effort separate from party politics, which residents thought would only divide them along ideological lines. So... I think this is amazing. And um, he wants to get Ashton Hayes to become Britain's first carbon neutral village. So bravo to these guys. And isn't that inspiring? Does anybody out there feel inspired? I I think it's amazing. I do too. I mean, what I like about it, see, is that it feels so so, uh, daunting to try to change the climate yourself. I mean, okay. We take fewer showers. Uh, we, um, you know, keep good insulation. We try not to turn on the air conditioner unless we're dying and so on. But, and we, you know, try to recycle. You know, we try to do the good things. We are not like super duper, but we do our best, right? And I remember the days when it just felt so futile to do these things. Okay, I'm going to recycle this plastic container, right? And then we see the oceans, you know, full of plastic. 
But what's beautiful about this is that these people are trying to come to, together to do it together. See, that's what I really like about it. See, the inner revolution, what we're trying to transmit to ourselves is that we need each other. We need to work together to make the kind of changes that we all need. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're living in Louisiana or in Indiana or in any other place that's getting, oh, I mean, what was it, Baton Rouge? You know, they've gone through so much. In fact, one of the beauties of the flooding in Baton Rouge for these poor people, as it was uh, announced, is that people are really trying to come together and heal from the police shootings and the violence in the community. You know, people are pulling together. People do com- pull together in a crisis, and that's when you see our ability for real mutual support. Well, we need to realize that our world is in a crisis. Our world is in a crisis in so many ways, isn't it? It's not just the climate. And, you know, I would like to make just a few more editorial remarks here. I also was uh, looking at some of the information about the followers of Trump. And what they're discovering in studies is that they are not all poor. In fact, many of them are doing better than others. So... That means that it isn't just economic despair that's pushing these white people. In fact, that's the interesting thing. But what they've been saying, well, they're afraid their children won't do as well. But it's they, what some people are positing is that, that these white people are feeling like they are afraid they might lose or they could lose or that somebody else is getting a better deal. Well, we are always trying to debunk that idea. But what I sense is that many, many of these uh, voters, Trump voters, are white men, and they are losing their status in our world. You know, we do not live in a white-dominated world. I hate to bring this news to you. <laughs> there, are, there are people in the world who are not white, and there are a lot of, a lot of them, and some of them have quite a bit of economic power such as China, you know, India, Japan, who knows. And so um, within our nation and within our world, there's this incredible backlash against what is real, what is happening, the reality that the world is changing and that we don't really corner the market on power anymore. So you hear Donald Trump gets up and says, oh, let's make the world, you know, the country great again. To me, that means we should be able to bully everybody in the world again, and white men should be able to do anything they want. Now, this comes with a price, guys, because those the white worker who uh, was happy because he was doing better than his black neighbor is doing way worse than the billionaires. You know, and uh, the reality is that these people, sort of the quite white middle class men, are doing worse relatively and they're feeling it but instead of coming together like these people and Ashton Hayes are doing right they're trying to plump up their position and they're really angry about it I think a lot of this is pure ego how dare we have Muslims in this country oh and it isn't just that it's not just us have you heard about the increasing ridiculousness of the French 
home of the revolution, right? The French Revolution and supporters of the American Revolution. Well, these guys are getting ridiculous when it comes to oppressing Muslim women at the beach. When they're taking off their burkinis, and I think uh, you know we, we had this news on last week that there were several towns that were passing these laws against Muslim women wearing burkinis, which covered them up. Like somehow or other, this is going to create terrorism in the world is a woman covers up her body so she can go into the water and still feel good about it. And some, I mean, they're fining them. They're, uh, they, they pulled off a woman's burkini in public and she had a tank top on underneath it. I mean, what is this? What is this? This is what's happening in our world. Instead of coming together, we're getting very self-protect. Not everybody, thank God, right? But many of us are getting really self-protective about our own class, our own gender, our own race. So here it is. There are two things happening in the world today. You have people more and more in the oneness who are really supporting one another, who care about the planet, who care about others, who get the idea, you know, that we are all one. And then you have people who are so frightened by that that they're in this mindless backlash, even if it hurts them. And it does. Now, today, we are interviewing a guy who should be one of those mindless millionaires who's protecting himself, just like so many of these uh, wealthy people in our nation today who know about the obscenity of inequality. And not only aren't they doing anything about it, but they're trying to get more. I mean, look at these some of these Republican tax plans. Drop the taxes on the rich. Let the poor suffer. You know, it's it's incredible. But there are some people who really understand oneness. So this is my long-winded editorial introduction to our guest. Fred, I'm not even going to say your last name. Welcome to our show, and I'm going to let you say it. Rotendaro, Beth. Rotendaro. Okay, so I bit, got it. I, you must okay. have some Italian in your blood. No, no I'm from New York. Oh, <laughs> Right? Well, All New Yorkers are Italian. Do perfectly, Jews. Then. Exactly. You know, we used to, you know, I never grew up with the idea that the world was white because I grew up in New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, Fred, first of all, to, how do you become a patriotic millionaire? What do you have to do to become a millionaire? Uh, the group was formed a bunch of years ago by a woman named Erica Payne, and she had this, you know, I, I thought, brilliant idea that some people who had made some money, who, to be blunt, like myself, were lucky, and our timing was good, uh, not that we were morally better or infinitely smarter, we were lucky, our timing was good, <laughs> I repeat, and that uh, we could do some things to help to help the country. Uh, you, you summed up our organization in your introduction. Uh, I did. We're in a crisis. The world is in a crisis, and we have to pull together. And I personally think anybody who doesn't realize that isn't thinking very clearly. So you've got a group of people like myself, a couple of hundred of us, uh, who said, hey, we got, we got some money. Uh, we know that we can do something good with it. Let's try to band together and do some things to make the country better, not just for ourselves, 
but better for everybody. And in making it better for everybody, it's going to be better, much better for my three grandkids. And that means a lot to me, and I think it means a lot to pretty much everybody in, everybody in the organization. You know, it's, it, it's, not, it's not nuclear science. It's, it's <laughs> just pretty reasonable that you, if, you have a, uh, if you have a society uh, that the founders wanted, too many people forget that in the preamble to the Constitution, they talked about not individual wealth, but the common welfare. That was Whoa. how we were founded. That was how we were founded. We've forgotten it. Too many of us have forgotten it. That is totally anti-capitalist thinking, Fred. This is subversive. Oh, hell, you're right. (laughs) What can I say? I love it. What can I say? What can you say? Who said capitalism is a perfect system anyway? Who said, oh, in the beginning there was capitalism, you know, or God created capitalism, you know? I think we've had a lot of other social systems before, and we will have some after. But okay, and so we the- will. And one of the founding gods of capitalism, uh, Adam Smith, uh, uh, wealth of na- the wealth of nations. Uh, uh, the invisible uh, hand. Found- he knew the problems of capitalism. He knew the dangers of capitalism. He People did. Read now, him. this is news. I don't know about yeah. this. This is news to me. I love learning something new. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Smith, Smith was a moral philosopher more so than he was an economist, and he realized he was putting forth a theory uh, of, of, of trade, putting forth a theory of work, but he also realized, he also realized that uh, capitalism uh, can turn very, very quickly, as let's face it, it has in this country. Capitalism yeah. can turn very quickly in to a kind of crony capitalism, into a kind mm-hmm. of political capitalism, into a kind of system in which you are paid absorbent uh, salaries, not because you're producing anything useful, but because you have connections, but because yeah. you have people who are watching your back just as you then watch their back. Uh, I, you know, there's a, um, a very interesting... Uh, book and I can't recall the name of it, but it is written by a Nobel uh, scientist, a psychologist, and he posits the theory that in most cases uh, major corporations uh, can run without quote that genius at the top. Uh, he no, in fact, maybe they have they're running again, albeit uh, in spite of the genius at the top. Oh, that's well. That's exactly that's exactly true. And some of them do run in spite of the genius at the top. <laughs> it's very it's very very true. And yet that genius, even when the corporation is doing very little or maybe even hurting uh, the community, that genius keeps getting payment uh, and wealth. I think the average pay for a corporate CEO now in the Fortune 500 is $14 million. Isn't that disgusting? It is totally disgusting. It's, it it's is totally disgusting. disgusting. I, you know, yeah, how, how read, can you just... Yeah, go ahead, Fred. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I read very recently that uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Stanley is now going to raise of uh, the salaries of their very lowest paid workers get them up to 10 bucks and 12 bucks an hour meanwhile the guy that made the decision Jamie Dimon is uh, making 26 million dollars a year and has been making that amount for 
probably a decade or so. Uh, this, the, the, the country is tragically operating, um, uh, operating on, on the basis of who has the money, who has the power, takes it all, and very bluntly, very sadly, says nobody else matters, nobody else counts. That's going to destroy yeah. this nation. And that's yes. why I think patriotic millionaires exist. We like to think of ourselves as patriots. We do want the nation to survive, and you can't do it by having 90% of the people getting consistently messed over by people with power. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with whether you're white, black, or you know, a yellow, Hispanic, whatever. If you think that... It was the days were better when white people could control the government. I mean, you know, you look at the pictures when mm-hmm. I was a kid. I looked at uh, when they finally came out with television <laughs> in the 1940s, right? Uh-huh. Right? Some of us were alive then. And, uh, you know, you would see or you would look in the newspaper, all the representatives were white men. All of them. Yes. You know and that's the way it was, and that was considered normal. And then you had some, uh, you know, anomalies like Eleanor Roosevelt, who happened to be in that position because she was married to Franklin, not because mm-hmm. she got elected. You know, amazing woman who just like smashed out of not only the gender uh, deficit, but also ca- the she completely uh, took the side of workers. I mean, this is during the Great Depression. Eleanor Roosevelt was running around trying to help workers when Franklin wasn't. <laughs> That's exactly right. Isn't that right? Uh, and, you know, she absolutely. was like... I, she, she, she was she worshipped. She was de facto eyes and ears of, of a president. And she yes. went back and she had moral courage. And she pushed her, her husband, the president, into doing good things. Not totally, yes. because the, no. the, the New Deal was wonderful for so many Americans, including my father, but it didn't do a lot for, uh, for black Americans in the Deep South. That was yeah. tragically part of the deal uh, in, order to get, in order to get the votes of Southern congressmen at the time. Notice I said congressmen, not representatives, or not congressmen and congresswomen. But in order to yeah. get the vote of Southern congressmen, you had to leave black Americans out of the recovery that Franklin Roosevelt was pushing during the Depression. That is such a horrible fact. And, you know, we've seen things like that over and over, haven't we? In fact, next week, we're going to have Josh Hoxie and Manuel Nieves come on and talk about uh, the inequality between whites and blacks. And a report mm-hmm. that they uh, and some others have just put out together. So we'll be talking about that in more depth. But this piece of information that you're giving is like even in the New Deal, you know, it's uh, it was always at the expense of somebody. It's our great. Very good point. What was great about us? It's always at somebody's expense, and it isn't at the expense of the wealthy. It's always at the expense of somebody who's less powerful. Two and very good what, points. Yeah. Never at the expense of the wealthy. No, no, no. no. In, uh, in, it, it, yeah. Go, no, you go ahead, please. Okay. In fact, Fred Wolf, an economist, 
who really questions capitalism, who was on, on our show months ago, you know, he was mm-hmm. talking about the fact that the New Deal was really a deal that they made to keep the American people from having a revolution. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you know, said, look, you will either have the New Deal or we're going to be overthrown. What do you want? Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the I way, that was a lot uh, to Richard, be said for that. Uh, we shouldn't forget oh, Richard that at the same Wolf. time Richard you Wolf. had the... I'm sorry. Well, you shouldn't forget that at the same time you had the New Deal, you had the the populist governor of Louisiana, Huey Long, uh, who was yes. threatening to run for gov- uh, for excuse me for president in 1930 and 1936. Uh, you had right wingers uh, who were pushing, like Father Coughlin, who were pushing for a literal revolution. So there was, I think, genuinely a lot of concern that you could have a revolution in this country. Um, uh, it, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's funny, but a couple of weeks ago, I read a column uh, by Martin Wolf, the financial columnist for the Financial Times of London. Now, hardly a left-wing publication. Uh, <laughs> and Martin Wolf wrote that it was time that the global economic elites recognize that tens of millions of people around the Western world had legitimate complaints and they had to be dealt with. Yes. And they could not continually be ignored. They had to be dealt with. Otherwise, there were going to be deep and deeper problems coming to us. Once again, this is a very serious uh, columnist for the Financial Times, yes. uh, you know, together with the Wall Street Journal, uh, to, you know, two of the most, uh, two of the most uh, 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 conservative uh, uh, financial publications in the world, certainly reflecting the, the mindset of the financial community. You know, this brings up just two things. Uh, that I that I want to share. First of all, I want to talk about back in the 30s, and then I want to come back to the point that you just made, because you were talking about the possibility of revolution. You come from a coal mining family, and I, mm-hmm. I would love to, I want to get into your history when we get through with this part, I want to get into your history, and then I want to get into way more about what your group is doing. But we're talking about the context. But in the 30s and even the 40s, I mean, people... When they went on strike, they were standing up to the entire capitalist class. They were standing up to the capitalist system. You know, it was very radical. There were a lot of socialists and communists in our labor movement. You know, where is that now? You know, but uh, there were. And uh, I, I just keep thinking of this song that I love. Uh, God, I have a horrible voice. Everybody just don't listen. But just listen to the, the meaning of this song. <laughs> it's like, my, one of my favorite songs is, Which Side Are You On? And oh, yeah. they say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You're either for the union or a scab for J.H. Blair. Which side are yeah. you on? Which side are, are you, on? you on? Right? And, you know, these people, it was no joke. What they went through. The, the, the strikes that they went through, the auto industry, you know, uh, and the suffering that people went through just to get any kind of decent wages or working conditions, we don't even know about that. Most people don't even know about our own history and don't even know that the radicals in our labor movement were, were uh, it, well, they were trumped out. <laughs> 
<laughs> drummed out is the correct word, right? <laughs> All right. They were drummed out. They were people were imprisoned for being communists. I mean, it and was some like were let's break huh, murdered. Yeah. Some were uh, murdered. Let's break, and, that's and, right. I'm sorry. During strikes, very often, coal companies, uh, uh, coal companies, the automobile companies, they could count on organize. They could count on the government to send in the national guard, to send yes. in the police, to beat up. Yes. To in some cases kill stri- strikers. Now the That's history right. of, of that in our country is shameful, but it's also inspirational. The way these people fought and got what we what so many workers have today, uh, right? And it it is so 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 shameful. But they did. They continued to fight. Uh, we need to do more of that. There's no question. Exactly. We need to remember that we can do it. It's like these people in Ashton Hayes. I mean, they got together and they did it. And we need to just wake up to what we need to do instead of trying to deport 11 million uh, Mexicans that now Trump says, oh, well, I didn't really mean that, did I? (laughs) You know, know, but uh, all this nonsense that's going on is like distraction and yes white workers we are losing our power but we're not going to get power by stepping on the faces of people who have even less power than we do we need to have an assault on a system that is keeping so many people impoverished and uh, I know I had a second point but now I can't even remember it because Fred you and I start talking and it's just hopeless (laughs) Beth, if I may, uh, my first job when I came to Washington uh, was working for a late, uh, died very tragically of cancer at the age of 50, a priest named Gino Baroni. He was a Roman Catholic priest, uh, and he uh, operated on the assumption that you would move into a community. He moved into places like uh, New York City, like Providence, Rhode Island, and he would unite working-class people, black working-class people, Hispanics, Italians, Jews. His theme was, hey, the enemy is not that black guy over there. The enemy is that Uh, guy who lives in the big house on the hill screwing (laughs) both of you guys. And Baroni was a marvel. Uh, He uh, organized in cities around the country. He was a mentor uh, certainly to me, uh, in regard to the fact that he would tackle the power structure. And uh, yeah. on, on that same line, uh, I should point out that in, in addition to being with patriotic uh, millionaires, I'm also uh, very active with a very progressive Catholic organization called Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good, and the reason I got involved was a bunch of years ago, a friend of mine uh, called me and said, Fred, we need some help trying to organize Catholics for Barack Obama. And my mm. reaction was, if you're coming to me, you guys have got to be in deep trouble because uh, <laughs> I am hardly the ideal Catholic. But I began to see as I did that, and we're still doing this, that the Catholic Church which once was a bulwark for uh, laborers and the working man had become in some circles 
some cities uh, a, a stronghold of conservative thought. Isn't and so that you've something? got right now, you've got lay Catholics operating as Catholics, fighting with the institutional church. And we we got a pretty big ally these days. His name is Francis, so uh, that helps yeah. us an awful lot. Oh, but my you, God, that's but Pope I think Francis, that, too. <laughs> I'm sorry? Yeah, I was just telling people that he's talking about Pope Francis, if you didn't make the connection. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Pope Francis. But the church was typical of institutions which began to operate on the basis of the institution is the most important thing, not the individual. Mm-hmm. I use the mm-hmm. church as an example. It's hardly the only such institution in this country. And that's why individuals at the grassroots level have really got to, uh, have really got to pull together to fight this. Uh, rather, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, the Catholic worker. Remember the Catholic worker? It was very oh, radical. Dorothy Day. But, yeah, very, very radical. So, and the thing is, I think what you're bringing is one more dimension, which is that the enemy isn't really the guy who's sitting in that house. That the enemy is a mentality that we have that the way to survive in this world is to get everything for ourselves. That is the enemy. Very good way to put it. And, you know, because here you are, you're a perfect example of what we are trying to do in the inner revolution, which is to say we are all suffering because of this system. And I have, uh, you know, talked before about how rich people grow up feeling guilty, uh, you know, feeling sometimes feeling useless. uh, If you're, you know... And and what what do people do in order to give their lives meaning? You know, women having their arms waxed or something, so mm-hmm. so, so they can stay in you know in the favor of some wealthy man, you know, who has taken them on as a trophy. And I mean, I've seen it. I'm a I'm a counselor by by. Mm-hmm. This is how I make a living: is by being an intuitive counselor and doing workshops for people who want to be change agents and mm-hmm. but dealing with it on an emotional level is like turning ourselves around. So it's not just external, let's all get together and kill him. But it's like, what is it within ourselves? I mean, we talk about the ego, how the ego is the enemy of all people. Because you know, and you're an example of this, you know that if your children are growing up in a society where there is horrible discrimination against anybody, those people mm. who are being discriminated against are going to get angry. Gee whiz, I wonder why. And then they're mm-hmm. going to maybe do violent things. Or they may get desperate and have to steal. Or, you know, take drugs. And, you know, are, and then they're next to you uh, on, the, on the freeway and they run into you and they kill you because they're on drugs because they're oppressed. You know, there's mm-hmm. no escape from the negative side effects of this income inequality and the inequality of power in our world and the lack of synergy among people. I feel that we need more and more people who are wealthy to realize that wealth itself is not a substitute for well-being. In fact, it doesn't give you well-being. If that were true, there would not be so many wealthy alcoholics and drug addicts, you know? So people are suffering on every level. Wealthy people would never beat their wives or their children 
if wealth gave well-being. doesn't. In fact, a lot of these people in this corporate structure are complete nervous wrecks. They're living in Stressville, right? And they're always mm-hmm. having to prove something about their productivity or, you know, how much money they can make for the company or for their stockholders. or And they're living on the edge of stress and they have to cut off their feelings about the people that they're oppressing. They, they can't even see it because if they saw it, they would collapse inside. And so I think that wealth, separate from the common wealth, as you were saying, Adam Smith was talking about. Um, no, you were saying that that was in the preamble. Uh, that wealth, separate from the common wealth, is not a good thing. It's when we are all better off that we are all, you know, more tolerant, more loving. We have more relaxation. We get mm-hmm. more of the things that we need. We have more satisfaction. People are happier, they don't have to kill each other, you know, they're not competing with each other, but this is Mm -hmm. not the mentality that we are being taught. So we you know right. Right. So the inner revolution, like what we're trying to do is say, okay, that old revolutionary spirit that we had in the thirties and that many of us had in the sixties or whatever, and that we're seeing coming up again. We need that spirit, but it needs to be connected to the understanding that it isn't the people who are the enemy. It's a way of being in the world that anybody can be that way. You can be poor and beat your children, and it's, you're the same problem as the wealthy guy who's trying to take power from him yeah. or herself. Yeah. So, Fred... I, I, I think you're yes. exactly right. There's a very interesting book which you uh, may may well know. It's called. Uh, it's by Jacob Packer and Paul Pearson. It's called Winner Take All Politics. No, nope, never heard of it. And the theme of the book is an examination of American political history as it relates to our economic structure from about the 1980s on. And the authors, and I won't go into the details they do. But the authors point out that it was in that period and then coming down to the present where the old American concept of we're all in this together, this is Mm. one prospers, the other should prosper, gave way to the winner takes all. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's the name of of that book? It's called Winner Take All Politics. And it's by a couple of political scientists. One is... uh, Jacob Packer from Yale, the other is Paul Pearson from the University of California. I don't know either one of them. I'm not getting any kickbacks from either one of them. It's no, a, no. <laughs> it does a wonderful it does a wonderful job because it shows what has happened from the time when well after the war and up to about the nineteen seventies all Americans prospered, with the exception of black Americans, once again. Oh, my God, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Lynching and Jim Crow and, exactly. and you know, women, women, I have to tell you, though, they must know this, that women didn't prosper either. Women were still under the thumb. So it's like the good old days that, you know, excluded a whole lot of people. But I do think that the point is well taken, and it's, it's good to hear about that. Now, what, does, what do you have to have in order to be considered a millionaire? Just in case you're um, sitting out there wondering if you are a millionaire, <laughs> let's find out. 
<laughs> what is you know, there? What I'm is the criteria? Really, I hate what? to say this. I'm not really sure. Certainly, a million dollars. Many of us uh, all belong into what is called that wonderful one percent, which I think now means an income of uh, at least four hundred thousand uh, in the course of a year, or in many cases, a million or more. So it's okay, really so more related. Okay, so you saying you have. A- Hold on. I just want to understand this. I know this is going to sound really stupid. It means like you yeah. have to have a net worth of a million dollars. Like oh, if well, you that, had, yeah, at a bare at a bare minimum. Basically, you're talking really more about your your annual income, which should be in the uh, the one percent bracket of four hundred thousand uh-huh. or above. James, I guess we can't join the patriotic millionaires. We'll make well, an we exception. Could, we, you, you could, you, ah. could, you could bring so much to it. Could I? <laughs> Absolutely. I would love. You, oh, I would love to, you, Fred. You could bring so much to it. You know, your opening comment when you were talking about the Muslim women in France. I, I yeah. opened the New York Times this morning, and I saw a picture of French officers, French policemen with with guns. You know, forcing these women to either get off the beach or arrest them, and I and, and like you, I thought of I thought of uh, the revolution in in, oh, in France. Uh, I thought yeah. of the Enlightenment in France, and I said, "What is the what, what are we coming to?" Yeah, well, it's not just France; it's England. It's oh no! All, exactly, all, and it, it's Denmark. I mean, it's these so-called exactly. you know, social welfare countries. Are there? They have right-wing nationalists. You know, this is so scary, Fred, because yeah. these these conditions that should be—and this was the point I completely forgot that I was going to make before—these conditions that should be birthing a real revolution of people yeah. coming together for the common good are is that if those conditions are doing it. For some people and with some people, and it's exactly. creating just greater backlash in other people. And we've got to be willing to walk into that backlash and say, guys, you're us. What are you thinking? Yeah, exactly. What are you doing? How much are you going, to, what, what are you going to do to hold on to that sliver of, of ego, of belief that somehow you're superior to somebody mm-hmm. else? When you are, when we are all being crushed by the same forces, you know, how many delusions are, what are you willing to pay for a life of delusions? Mm-hmm. So what, so tell us what the patriotic, by the way, does the, do you have any billionaires in your group? I'm not asking you for names. No. I, I'm, I'm just <laughs> yeah, curious. Couple, we have a couple of guys that used to be managing partners in hedge funds. If they're not billionaires, nobody's a billionaire. Uh, and, and by the <laughs> way, one of, one, of their, uh, one of their big goals is to do away with the carried interest loophole. Uh, your listeners probably, uh, oh, you don't know about that. That's why Mitt Romney and uh, people like Romney were able to pay 13 and 14 percent. Romney's the one year in tax returns he gave, he paid 14 percent, and he was making uh, he was making uh, 20 to 30 million dollars a year because of the carried interest loophole. 
Oh, so, let's uh, hear that. about that. Hey, let's hear about yeah. I want to know what you guys are proposing. And by the way, the reason I asked if there were any billionaires, but I guess yeah. you don't have to you don't have to prove you're a millionaire to join the organization. You just say I'm joining. Um, yeah. uh, the reason I was asking is because I wanted to know if this kind of spirit is up there in the billionaire class as well. That, that's yeah. why I asked that. Yes, I, it I'm is. Thr- I'm thrilled. Thrilled. It is. Okay. Um, um, it is. We, we have some, as I say, some people who are, a number of people who are hedge fund managers. And, uh, uh, you know, hedge fund managers, the top, I think it was about a year or two ago, uh, the top 25 hedge fund managers in America, and this was a statistic that always threw my, blew my mind, made more combined than every kindergarten teacher in the United States of America. These guys were averaging, some of these hedge fund managers, in the billions per year. One guy, I can't remember his name, yeah, who is not a member of our organization, made $4 billion in one year. Uh, And they pay at a a, uh, tax rate of 15% or less. Oh, because they have geez. enough money to buy enough politicians. Well, that's that's it, and to buy the media, to buy our minds, and to buy the media, yeah, yeah, or yeah. the media well, gives up. They just they just stop writing about it. They think it's not sexy. Who wants to hear about that? Who wants to hear about tax policy? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but well, the I poor think guy or the kid, yeah, or the kids who weren't getting weren't getting breakfast or lunch because uh, the Republicans want to impose an austerity budget because they don't want to tax people like me and people and people who are in the billionaire bracket. Uh, we want to hear about those things. Uh, uh, what we're doing to our kids in this country because of a philosophy of uh, a philosophy of uh, of uh, austerity is, I, I think. Just absolutely horrible. 22% of American kids uh, under the age of 18 live in poverty. Yeah. And they and about that of same proportion kids, yeah. go hungry. I'm sorry? Yeah, I just wanted to repeat that for everybody. You know, sometimes you hear these statistics and your brain freezes. 22% yeah. of our kids under the age of 18 live in poverty. Yeah. In and this, that's in not the United fun. States of America. Of yeah. the 34 industrial nations in the uh, Organization of Economic Development, of the 34 industrial nations, including places like Italy, Mexico, Peru, and England, France, the United States has the second highest percentage of kids in poverty. Isn't that shocking? Did you get that? Yeah. This is God Bless America yeah. time? God Bless yeah. America. And when we talk about... America being exceptional, I think we are exceptional in what the founders wanted us to do. We are also exceptional in what we are doing now to our own to to our own people, which I think is tragic and sad, and it's going to and it's going to turn us into a. Uh, it's going to destroy the greatness of America if it hasn't already. It's all yes, yes, because it's getting worse. I mean, it this is, is a fact. Worse. It, it's it's getting worse. Okay, you have one minute to tell me where you were born and how did you grow up. 
Pittston, Pennsylvania, coal mining town. My father was a coal miner. He went to work in the coal mines at the age of 11. Um, he left some 45 years later when uh, mining underneath the Susquehanna River, the river broke in uh, and 12 miners died. My father was one of the last group of 25 uh, to get out to safety. Um, did we you were say able that was when you were 11? Is that, did you say uh, no, that was my when father you were went to, uh, My father went to work in the mines when he was 11. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. Wow. Yeah. He went wow. to work in the mines when he was 11 uh, because of, and this is one of the reasons I'm involved, Beth. Uh, my father, I, I was in college. I would have had to have left. But the state of Pennsylvania was a good state. Uh, we had something called black lung benefit. Yes. Black lung benefits. My father was able to live the last years of his life with a decent pension because he was going to die of black lung from working in the mines. I was able black to go to Black lung college. disease, for our listeners, if you don't know, is yeah. a coal miner's disease. Absolutely. From the coal dust in their lungs. Exactly. Exactly. And, and another quick anecdote. A couple of years ago, the head of the house... A uh, committee on labor uh, gave an exemption or it told, uh, re- withheld money from the labor department uh, for enforcing black lung pension um, uh, health standards. Reason he did it, he was running for Senate, and guess who was funding his campaign? He was running in Montana, cool. uh, and he was running against John Tester uh, and the coal mines, the mines in, in Montana. Uh, uh, funded his campaign, and so we just stopped money from going into health programs for coal miners. Uh, you know, one of the become... things... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead. Well, I just was going to say, one of the things that really pisses me off is when people say, we need to get back those good jobs, you know, like get people back into the coal mines for those good oh, jobs. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. And you know, that just no. drives me up a wall. How anybody could ever consider that those jobs were good. If you didn't die in an accident, you know, you yeah. died from black lung disease, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for the worker, and yet people are being yeah. all revved up like, you need to get your good coal mining jobs back yeah. so we can all die yeah, <laughs> from exactly. pollution. It's, it's crazy. It's, we have to, uh, this, yes, go ahead. Uh, no, exactly. No, you're exactly right. Those those were brutal jobs. They did. They paid enough to survive, uh, but they were brutal jobs. And everybody, everybody that worked in the mines for ten or fifteen years, they were going to die from black lung from from uh, uh, from uh, accidents. Um, uh, uh, you know, a little little, uh, little example of uh, of that was a couple of uh, a couple of months ago. Of uh, the man who was the chair of the big, big branch coal mines in West Virginia, where 29 miners died from explosions uh, because they were not uh, they were not following safety rules. They had something like 1,300 safety violations. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but the chair of that group was convicted of violating safety in the coal mines. He mm-hmm. received. 29 people died. He received a grand total of one year in jail. Mm. Mm. I, I wonder if he acquitted. got out for good behavior. Uh, yeah. He was acquitted of uh, stock fraud connected with uh, the mines. 
he was acquitted of that. If he had been convicted of stock fraud, he could have received up to 30 years in jail. Oh, oh, oh. I, I remember reading that and thinking, I, I don't, it goes to show how a man's life is valued as opposed yeah. to how money is valued. That is if he had so cheated true. you out of your money, he's going to go to jail for 30 years. If he helped right. kill 29 minors, one year. And as you said, right, he'll or probably be out in shorter time. If you went into a convenience store and you held it up and got a, po- a bottle of pot, you could be in jail for 15 years, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'd, I'd hate to see the number of black Americans who have been jailed for exceedingly long times for crimes no more serious than that. I know. It's really true. Well, it's, you know, you, you grew up in the environment. You got it. You saw it. And you didn't stop caring. And I grew up in the environment, and I didn't stop caring. And those yeah. people who have stopped caring about what happens to other people have lost a, pe- a piece of their souls. Absolutely. You know, and I'm asking everyone who's listening to ask themselves what they can do because our world is sick and it's upside down and we're all suffering from it. We're all stressed. We feel alienated from each other. Gee, I wonder why. And there's something, that's something that only we can change by demanding more from ourselves and one, one another, demanding that we get our hearts back. That, that is so, perfect. What you just said is exactly right. And that's the only way it's going to happen. That's right, Fred. So anyway, let's hear what we're doing next week. I can't believe we've run out of time already uh, because, you know, we have to keep talking about the fact that there are things can be done. Tax law. Absolutely. But there's more than just tax law that needs to be changed. It's, it's our attitude needs to change. And with that, we need to come together. We have more workers cooperatives. I mean, there's just so mm-hmm. many things that could change in our world. Uh, and we have the power. So, James, what are we doing next week? Okay, next week, a natural follow-on from today's show. The racial wealth gap is shocking, and we're all being hurt. An interview with Josh Hoax Hoxie and Emmanuel Nieves. Are you just trying to get by? So how do you feel when you hear that the average black family would have to work 228 years to build the wealth of the average white family today? And if something doesn't change, that gap will worsen. If you think that doesn't impact you, guess again. Whatever our race or gender, most of us focus on our own struggles, feelings we have to fight for ourselves, even if we care about others. So how can we admit that slavery and institutional racism have created virtually insurmountable obstacles for blacks and Hispanics are also losing out? Our security would feel threatened. But when we realize that we're all impacted by the race gap, we see that we can't afford not to fight for one another. Our guests are among the co-authors of a new study showing that there is a growing income gap between blacks, Hispanics, and whites. They are here to share the facts, and we are here to talk about how all income inequality affects us all. Whatever your race, join us. And now for a final word. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for being on our show. Really have enjoyed it. And uh, if there is some way that I can help the patriotic millionaires, please let me know. I will. And we will. And Beth, next week's program is going to be so important. I've got a little familiarity with that. That is such an important topic. Yes. Yes. Well, you tune in. (laughs) I will. Yeah. I definitely will. 
We are the inner revolutionary. We are the innerrevolution.org. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the inner rev. Uh, we are inner revolutionary radio. We are we are on a shoestring budget. We are the paupers for a change. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Fred. And we're going to be posting this on Facebook as soon as you know uh, it gets the podcast cuts up. And this this show can go and have waves, make waves in the future. So God bless. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.